You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. More ransomware steals first and encrypts later. Are cobots vulnerable to novel forms of ransomware? Gangnam Industrial Style, the espionage campaign, not the K-pop dance number. Rancor is a persistent, well-resourced and creative APT, but without much success to its credit. The Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Corps takes the FBI to the woodshed. And hey, maybe he's really Vlad the Updater. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, December 18th, 2019. Ransomware attacks continue to exhibit the criminal gang's recent propensity for stealing data before they take the information hostage by encrypting it. A Canadian clinical laboratory firm, Life Labs, was attacked back in October, and data about some 15 million patients were exposed in the course of the attack. The data the hackers gained access to included names, addresses, emails, logins, passwords, dates of birth, and health card numbers. A much smaller subset of patients than the 15 million total also had their lab results exposed. That tally amounted to about 85,000, a relatively small fraction of those affected, but considered in absolute terms still a troublingly large number. Data exposed was older, dating to 2016 and earlier, But the breach is still a matter of concern. Most of the people whose PII were accessed are from British Columbia and Ontario. May they be on their guard against identity theft. LifeLab said that it engaged a security firm to help with forensics and recovery. It also said that it paid the attacker's ransom in order to recover access to their files. But that, of course, doesn't restore the privacy of the data that the extortionists took. Once the bad guys have seen the data, they're gone, baby gone. There's also another front to worry about in the struggle against ransomware, industrial robots. This one is a demonstration and not something that's been seen in the wild, but the demonstration is instructive. Alias Robotics has published a paper describing a method of infecting cobots, that is, collaborating robots used in manufacturing processes, with ransomware that locks them down until the victims pay the attackers to unlock them. The proof of concept, which Alias calls Acre Belts, after a protective animal in Basque folklore, would affect Universal Robots UR3, a widely used cobot. Alias hasn't released the code since it wishes to warn and not arm criminal gangs. Speaking of industrial cybersecurity, CyberX researchers have described a cyber espionage campaign that's evidently designed to steal sensitive data, especially design information, from manufacturers. CyberX calls it Gangnam Industrial Style, in homage to the K-pop dance sensation and in recognition that South Korean manufacturers have been most heavily hit. Some 60% of the victims have been located in the Republic of Korea. 
Other countries affected include, in rough order of the attention they received from the APT, Thailand, China, Japan, Indonesia, Turkey, Ecuador, Germany, and the United Kingdom. CyberX offers no attribution, contenting itself with the good work of describing the attack techniques and tactics. One might conjecture that the countries affected by Gangnam Industrial Style should be ruled out, but of course there's not only the possibility of misdirection, but of an attack slopping over to inflict domestic collateral damage. The attack proceeds by spear phishing. The emails are plausibly baited with files representing themselves as, for example, requests for quotations, that's RFQs if you're one of the unfortunates to have purchase authority, or simply as inquiries from buyers. The most common hook is the malicious attachment's payload, normally SEPAR malware. SEPAR both harvests credentials and searches for files of interest. The attackers may be after trade secrets in a conventional industrial espionage effort, or they may be looking for industrial system vulnerabilities that could be targeted in subsequent attacks. Both objectives are disturbing, but the second one is positively alarming. Consider the three payloads CyberX offers as examples of what they found. Quote, an RFQ for designing a power plant in the Czech Republic, which appears to have been sent by an employee of a Siemens subsidiary that manufactures industrial machinery. This email includes a schematic of the power plant and a publicly available technical white paper about the gasification of the plant, which is located in Vresova, Czech Republic. End quote. Or this one, quote, an RFQ for designing a coal-fired power plant in Indonesia purporting to be from the engineering subsidiary of a major Japanese conglomerate. To increase its appearance of legitimacy, the email includes a publicly available PDF of the company's corporate profile. Or this, an email purporting to be from a buyer at a major European engineering company that designs gas processing and production plants. Whoever's behind Gangnam Industrial Style is taking a close interest in energy infrastructure. Earlier this year, we spoke with the Hewlett Foundation's Eli Sugarman about their Cyber Visuals Initiative, an effort to bring fresh ideas to communicating concepts related to cybersecurity. Since then, the call to artists went out, the submissions came in, and the winners were selected. Eli Sugarman is back to share the results. We had never done a competition like this before, and so we were a bit new to it and thankfully had Open IDEO to be our guides. And so we launched the competition, put out information, did information sessions, publicized it, and got a lot of interest. Um, you know, we had over 100 artists um, submitted ideas, and then there were sort of, you know, two phases of review once, once the deadline was, was met. And so the first review was sort of taking the hundred and change submissions and sort of portfolios, if you will, and reviewing them with a panel of experts. And we, you know, had artists from all over the world, from the UK to the US to India to South America. And then sort of, you know, round two was then letting those artists refine their work um, and, and submit any, any final additions. And then we had a different jury um, sit down and judge those finalists to choose the five winners. Yeah, it's also, I think, noteworthy that um, none of these fell into what I would consider to be the, the common sort of cliches and traps that we see with with so much of the imagery having to do with cybersecurity. I mean, there's there's not a hoodie in the bunch. That And that was exactly our goal, that we are, like you, fed up about fed up by those tropes of hoodies, matrix style ones and zeros, um, locks and shields and medieval defensive, you know, 
I don't know, whatever. (laughs) Castles and moats. Castles and moats. And that that was actually one of the core tenets here was we just, so, so it's hard, right? When you're like, I know I don't like what exists, but I don't know what the better options are because Eli Sugarman is not a visual designer. And so, so it was really neat to see the creative juices flow to see what folks came up with, which is, as you pointed out, radically different from the existing visual landscape. And we're very excited by that. Now, I, I know that, that one of your hopes is that this is the beginning of a conversation. The awarding of these uh, prizes is not the conclusion of something, but that this is going to lead to other things. And wh- where are you looking for this to go from here? Well, what we hope to accomplish was just to show that it's possible, that with some resources and guidance, there are talented visual designers who want to do better and want to experiment and create a new visual language for cybersecurity. And so what we're hoping to see is people both to use the images that were created to evolve them and build off them because the Creative Commons license allows for that. You can take that image, you can then change it, um, and then it becomes something different. So long as you attribute the original image to the artist, um, you don't have to pay them anything. It's free, right? It's now a, a public good. And so, so we're hoping those are a few ways folks can sort of like evolve it and take the next step. Why is it important uh, for you and, and your team there at the Hewlett Foundation to support these types of initiatives? Our approach to cybersecurity grant making is building a field. And so we think that as digital technologies spread across society, you need longer term rigorous thinking about how to maximize the benefits and minimize the harms. And you need people with a mix of technical and non-technical skills to really do that. Like there aren't technical panacea. It's not just a legal question, right? And so, but that field of people, those institutions, those universities, those think tanks, the policymakers they talk to, the C-suite leaders are struggling to talk about these issues in a really in-depth, sophisticated way. We don't even have the words right in the sense that we don't have agreed upon definitions. But beyond that, to really get through to non-experts, you need to store, you need to tell stories and show things visually. And so we think that this repository of images is, is just one small step towards building the ability to do that. That's the Hewlett Foundation's Eli Sugarman. If you want to see the winning submissions, just do a search for Hewlett Foundation Cyber Visuals. The U.S. Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, in an unusual public order, has starchily directed the FBI to give an account of what it was doing when it requested FISA surveillance authority over Trump advisor Carter Page. The New York Times has called the Justice Inspector General's report on Crossfire Hurricane damning. The presiding judge, Rosemary M. Collier, wrote in the order, quote, The frequency with which representations made by FBI personnel turned out to be unsupported or contradicted by information in their possession and with which they withheld information detrimental to their case calls into question whether information contained in other FBI applications is reliable. She gave the Bureau until January 10th to return a list of positive steps it intends to take to ensure that it will henceforth Quote, provide complete and accurate information in every filing, end quote. The FBI has said that it accepted the Inspector General's findings in the investigation of Crossfire Hurricane and that the Bureau's Director Ray has already ordered more than 40 corrective measures to tighten up its FISA procedures. A broader IG investigation is in the offing, the Washington Post reports. And finally, we mentioned yesterday reports that Russian President Putin is still running Windows XP in his office and in his residence, XP being the last version of Windows the Russian organs authorized before moving in earnest toward software autarky. But wait, Forbes sees wheels within wheels here and points out that the pictures of Mr. Putin at work may well be deceptive 
an instance of what the Russians call Moskerovka. That sounds pretty scary, but it's a common term in the Russian military lexicon that covers what the Americans would call camouflage and deception. Camouflage is doing something like putting leaves in your hat. Deception would be using phony radio traffic to deceive the enemy about your order of battle. So consider, suppose you were being photographed in your workplace and you realize to your horror that your much-treasured but still sort of embarrassing Nickelback fan poster was visible in the background. So you ask the friendly photojournalist to Photoshop something else over the top of it. To your relief, she agrees, and your picture appears with, say, the Prussian Academy version of the collected works of Immanuel Kant in the background. In this case, Forbes darkly speculates, something similar may be afoot. Maybe the Russians just want everybody to think they're still running Windows XP on the president's machines, when in fact they're really quite up to date with the latest homegrown OS. It's a riddle, wrapped in a mystery, inside an enigma. Still, Santa, consider sending Mr. Putin that Best Buy card, and our hats off to Forbes for referring to the Russian president as Vlad the Updater. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire.
And joining me once again is Tom Etheridge. He's the VP of Services at CrowdStrike. Uh, Tom, it's always great to have you back. Um, we wanted to touch today on this notion of need for speed breakout time and something that you all refer to as the 11060 concept. Can you take us through what are we talking about here today? Excellent, Dave. Thanks again for having me. It's great to be here. The concept of 11060 really is um, a benchmark metric for understanding the effectiveness of an organization and being able to detect investigate and remediate an attack from happening in their environment. And this 11060 rule really is defined, as we see it, as the ability to detect in a minute, investigate in 10 minutes or less, and be able to remediate the attack in less than an hour. And Hmm. why is this important? This is important because another metric that we measure, breakout time, is the amount of time it takes an attacker from their initial entry point into a customer's network or environment until the time that they're able to move to a target or move laterally in a customer's environment. And what we see in the metrics that we track is that well-funded, advanced nation-state and e-crime threat actors typically move quickly. On average, it's about an hour and 58 minutes, which is a really tight window for organizations to be able to detect, triage, and remediate that issue from becoming a bigger issue. And Hmm. that's the importance of 11060. We've reported in our global threat report last year some of the metrics around advanced nation-state adversaries like Russian nation-state actors or bears, as we refer to them, can move in some cases in less than 20 minutes, 18 minutes and 49 seconds to be factual. Nation states that we call Kalimas, they're the next fastest threat actor group that we're tracking. Their movements typically uh, from breakout time is around two hours, 20 minutes, and 13 seconds. So the ability to be able to detect, triage, and understand what's going on with a, a threat that's in your environment and to be able to remediate it before the threat actor has the opportunity to move to parts of the environment, hide, or deploy additional tools that provide access or exfiltration capabilities is really important for customers to understand and try to strive to to meet that metric. Can you give me some insights here? Because uh, I would say my first reaction to the notion of of 11060, particularly that one of, uh, you know, being able to respond within, within a minute. I mean, how much of this by necessity happens through automation and how much is actual uh, humans who have eyes on the situation? The one thing, Dave, that's getting better with organizations is is the advancement of the tooling. Endpoint technologies such as CrowdStrike, Falcon, uh, provide for advanced EDR capabilities where we're able to leverage artificial intelligence, data at scale, that gives us crisper visibility quicker into what's really going on in a customer's environment. So prevention with some of these new tools is getting better. The real shortcoming is around the ability to understand that a threat is actually occurring in the environment. What type of threat is it? Who might the threat actor be? What are their motivations? What information are they trying to glean from their access? Are they trying to monetize their access or simply uh, exfiltrate data from a customer's environment? So being able to triage that very quickly, having great intelligence capabilities, 
good, strong analysts that understand what these threat actors are motivated by. And really, I should say, understanding your own environment and what would motivate an attacker to actually access your environment. And then the last piece of this, which is the remediation capabilities. This is an area that is certainly lacking for many organizations, mm-hmm. understanding what's going on, but being able to stop it. Uh, really, th- those are some of the, the key elements of the 11060 rule and some of the services that we offer. And certainly our technology is being built and designed to provide better controls and better ability to respond to and remediate these breaches from happening in a client environment. Tom Etheridge, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Very welcome. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.